1: From the newsroom of The Washington Post.
2: Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah, yeah.
3: Hi, it's Stephanie McCrummon from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports.
1: I'm Alexis Diao, in for Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, June 1st. Today, what we can learn from Fauci's emails. Naomi Osaka breaks tradition and... Reuniting post-vaccine.
2: My colleague Damian Paletta and I obtained 866 pages of Dr. Fauci's emails from March and April 2020. One of the craziest points of the government's response last year.
1: Yasmin Abutalib covers health policy for the Post.
2: That's when cases and deaths were really starting to ramp up. The White House was doing daily press briefings and Fauci was becoming something of a media star during that time. For Americans watching now and who rely on you, you're a voice of calm uh, and a voice of facts in the midst of all this. What should Americans prepare themselves for in these coming couple of weeks?
3: Well, it's a critical time,
1: Jim, in the next couple of weeks.
2: So this provided just a really unique look into his inbox and a bit of what he was dealing with and being asked to do and being pulled in all sorts of different directions at this moment when he was really rising to worldwide fame.
1: And how did we come to obtain these emails?
2: Damien had filed the Freedom of Information Act request last summer, and they came in just a few weeks ago, and we thought, you know, there was really compelling information in there and a pretty special way to look into what Fauci's life, or at least one aspect of it, looked like during this period where I think there's still a lot of fascination of what he was dealing with and what his life was like.
1: And why was the post interested in these emails specifically in this time period?
2: So if you remember back to March and April 2020,
3: Today I am officially declaring a national emergency. Two very big words. The action I am taking will open up access to up to 50 billion dollars of very important and a large amount of money for states and territories and localities in our shared fight against this disease.
2: That's when the virus was really, really picking up steam in the US and There were still massive testing shortages. There was so much confusion about how serious this was or not, because we had a national shutdown, but the president would often still insist it was going to go away and we would reopen by Easter and that things would get better in no time.
3: Ultimately, the goal is to ease the guidelines and open things up to very large sections of our country as we near the end of our historic battle with the invisible enemy. (laughs) I said earlier today that I hope we can do this by Easter.
2: And Fauci set himself apart during this period because he would swat down some of the assertions from Trump that hydroxychloroquine would be a miracle drug. And he would say, we don't really know when it's going to end or it's not going to magically go away.
0: We just had a conversation with the president in in the Oval Office talking about, you know, you can look at a date, but you've got to be very flexible. And on a, on a literally day-by-day day and week-by-week week basis, you need to evaluate the feasibility of what you're trying to do.
2: He was willing to contradict the president a bit more bluntly than most other officials at that time. And it was pretty fascinating to see in his inbox just where all of these requests were coming from. Some of them were fellow government officials who just had questions about what was safe and what wasn't. Then you had... PayPal asking him to give a talk to their company, the NFL Players Association asking him for a private briefing as they were trying to figure out whether and how they could resume the NFL season. So it was pretty compelling to see just how many directions he was pulled in and how frequently he actually tried to answer the requests coming from every which way.
1: And what do these emails tell us about this period of the pandemic?
2: I think they underscore just how confused people were about the mixed messages coming from the White House because there are so many people asking him what's true and what isn't and pleading with him to keep, you know, telling the truth even if certain people didn't want him to. So I think in a lot of ways they underscore just how chaotic his life was at that point and how much, you know, many people were turning to him and what they thought was one of the only accurate sources of information. The flip side of this coin is... This is around the same time Fauci started inviting the ire of some Trump supporters and conspiracy theorists and other Republicans who ultimately held him responsible or in part responsible for Trump's loss. And it's around the same time period he is assigned a full-time security detail because his worldwide fame is also attracting a lot of unwanted attention. And he starts getting death threats and a lot of harassment at this period.
1: Was there anything that surprised you in these emails? I think the just the scale of,
2: of how frequently he was being emailed and how much people from seemingly random corners, there were emails everywhere from Tanzania to Europe, just, just asking him what he thought, if he could help shed some light on something people were confused about. And I think the other interesting thing was to see how he sometimes grew kind of bewildered at the public fascination with him and how much some of it started to make him uncomfortable. There was one exchange where an NIH colleague sends him an article from the Washington Post that's about all this Fauci merchandise that's being made, Fauci donuts and socks and bobbleheads and and the public fascination. And Fauci saying, "I I wish it would stop. So I think it was just really interesting to see how he was internalizing and perceiving his kind of newfound fame on a much larger scale than what he was used to and what he saw his role responding to Strangers and former acquaintances alike trying to answer their questions, even if it was at two or three in the morning.
1: And in reading through these emails, did you get a sense of like Fauci the man?
2: I think you could see that he was afraid of the course the virus would take in the same way many of us were. Obviously, he's a highly respected infectious disease expert. He was in the middle of the response, but there was one email in which someone from the Surgeon General's office writes him and he ticks off a series of of pretty thoughtful questions about the virus. And in one of the questions, he asks, what keeps you up at night? And Fauci tells him that what keeps him up at night is a pandemic event. I think he mentioned something about a respiratory virus and the government's response to that, which is exactly the situation that we all found ourselves in. It was a very human moment just in seeing that he harbored a lot of the same fears that we did. There was, there was so much and continues to be so much that's unknown about this virus and how it behaves. And it was especially challenging because it was a respiratory virus that spread so easily. And he tells this person quite candidly that the situation that we were currently in was the one that kept him up at night.
1: Yasmin Abutalib covers health policy for The Post. This story was produced by Ariel Plotnick.
0: Naomi Osaka is one of the biggest tennis stars in the world.
1: That's Ben Strauss. He covers sports and media for The Post.
0: She's 23. She's won four Grand Slams. And she is the second ranked player in the world. And before the French Open, she announced that she was not going to do any press ahead of the tournament. She was not going to do any press conferences and the French Open responded by fining her $15,000 and issuing a statement in conjunction with the other Grand Slams saying if you continue to do this, the fines will rise and you could potentially be suspended from future participation in not just the French Open but the other Grand Slams as well. Naomi Osaka shockingly withdrew. And what we have now is we have, you know, one of the best players in the world is not getting to compete. We have a tournament that is without one of the best players, and we have fans who do not get to watch one of the best players in the world. And it's it's really a sad outcome for everybody.
1: And Ben, what has Naomi Osaka said about why she has refused to do press conferences and ultimately drop out of the French Open?
0: She has said the decision, her statements are, are really based around mental health, her own mental health, her own well-being boundaries that she needs to set and part of that is not wanting to speak to reporters who you know, may ask questions that make her doubt herself in, in a very difficult tournament and the anxiety that comes with just sitting in front of a room full of reporters.
2: In a candid statement on social media, the 23-year-old shared she had suffered long bouts of depression since the U.S. Open in 2018. She said she often wears headphones, which help dull my social anxiety. I'm not a natural public speaker, she wrote, and get huge waves of anxiety before I speak to the world's media. I get really nervous and find it stressful. Every time you ask me a question, I hold my breath. (laughs) I'm so
0: scared. (laughs) Um, And she talked about depression, how she's been depressed for the last couple of years and how just the anxiety of even thinking about talking to the media has really difficult effects for her. And so she went into more detail about her reasoning and the depression and the anxiety and said she was withdrawing.
1: And walk me through what the reaction has been like so far.
0: I think the reaction initially to Naomi Osaka was everybody does this. Perhaps you can do it too. This is just part and parcel of your job. You know, these press conferences are not that onerous. You know, everybody, tennis stars, other athletes have been doing them for decades. And then Naomi Osaka's follow-up statement, sort of going into more detail about her depression and anxiety and why this was such a big issue for her and so difficult, you know, has made her much more sympathetic. And these grand slams and the French Open in particular that have sort of really jumped down her throat, castigated her. It just seems like there could have been a different way to address her feelings, knowing now how serious they are.
1: So I want to talk about the issue of of mental health, because, of course, that's you know the reason why naomi osaka has is basically refusing to do these press conferences is you know setting up boundaries between herself and what she feels are questions of, of people that that doubt her and her abilities is this a concern that other athletes have raised
0: yeah i think we've heard more athletes speak out about mental health. We heard Dak Prescott, the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys, talk about depression. And we've heard people like Michael Bennett, a former NFL player, talk about depression. And I think, you know, over the course of of sports, there's been a a realization or sort of a move to understand athletes as people, as more than performers. And you can look at that in the collective bargaining agreements that they fought for over the years, you know, athletes didn't used to be free agents. They used to be bound to their teams and now they can sign wherever they want after a given period. And so we're, we're moving towards seeing athletes more as people. And I think in this moment on the heels of the coronavirus and the pandemic, And more and more athletes being willing to talk about their own mental health, that that is, you know, a movement in that direction also.
1: Have there been other situations where this has come up before, where players have just refused to do press conferences?
0: So there's a pretty high profile, very recent example. Uh, Kyrie Irving, you know, one of the better players in the NBA, has been fined twice He's a member of the Brooklyn Nets, and he's been fined $25,000 and $35,000 both this season for refusing to talk to the media ahead of the season and then refusing to speak to them after games during the season. So he has said, my time is too valuable. I don't want to talk to the media. He referred to the media as pawns, and he has been fined for this too. And so I think Naomi Osaka's first statement touched a nerve in, in some parts of the media because we're in a world right now where athletes do not need reporters in the way that they did years ago when they needed newspaper or a reporter to get their story out to get their message out you know the the most prominent athletes have more followers on twitter more followers on instagram than most news organizations and so what was a very clear relationship you know the press will cover athletes and in turn for speaking to the press, athletes will get lots of attention and, you know, become more well known, doesn't have the same benefit to athletes that it did in, you know, the 70s, 80s, 90s. And so that's um, another one of the issues that's at play. And this relationship is, is very unique to sports. Rock stars do not meet the media after a concert and, you know, answer questions about their performance. The same thing with actors. So this is a, a pretty unique thing in sports. You know, sort of the flip side of this is these are press conferences and athletes get asked a lot of dumb questions in these press conferences, um, quite frankly. And the utility of them, how much information comes out, if there is another way to do them, is a reasonable question. You know, many have said, I spoke to um, Keith Olbermann, a former Sports Center anchor, you know, who said this idea that that media members have this absolute right to access of these athletes, you know, is a little misguided.
1: Do you think that professional sports might be forced to consider clauses that require athletes to speak to the media.
0: Well, it's interesting because athletes don't need the media in the same way that they once did because of their platforms and because of the followings that they have. And so the power dynamic here is, you know, obviously the media needs the athletes, they need to cover the athletes in order for people to subscribe, to click, etc. But the athletes just don't need the media in the same way. And and they have more of the power in this relationship. And if they exercise it, it, it will be somewhat fascinating to see you know, what they ask for and what they demand. Uh, but it also sort of gets at this question of who owns the game. The French Open is sort of saying we are the game and you come play. And Naomi Osaka and other athletes have said, well, there is no French Open without the players. And that's a fundamental question that, that sports has been grappling with you know, for a long time.
1: Ben Strauss covers sports and media for The Post. This story was produced by Sabi Robinson. And now one more thing.
0: <laughs>
1: From grandparents and grandkids, surprise, to aunts and nephews. There she is. Hi. There's Auntie Laura. Hey, hey dude. How's it going? Americans are reuniting with those they've missed most. More than 167 million people have gotten at least one vaccine shot in the United States. And many are ready to see their friends and family, including Wendy Elliott. She's in a group of four women, all in their 60s,
3: who have a weekly game of Mahjong. We've been playing together for probably three years. And we would play once a week, and I would say we were casual friends. And then the pandemic hit, and we couldn't see each other in person anymore. We couldn't play in person anymore, so we started playing online. Mahjong is a very tactile game. It's very sensory. You hear the click of the tiles. You touch the tiles. You know, you hear each other calling tiles. You kind of miss that when you're not playing in person.
1: Early in the pandemic, Wendy was diagnosed with breast cancer.
3: Just having these women available to socialize with and vent with and having them as part of my tribe was just really important. And
1: then in the fall, her friend Val Greenberg learned that she too had breast cancer. The Mahjong game that had been a casual social activity became a lifeline. Hello? Oh no, it's Val! Hello
3: and Val ended up getting diagnosed in September. It just gives you the strength to know that someone else is doing the same thing that you are.
0: Hi. Oh, so nice to see you. I know. Oh.
3: (laughs) I know. I know. When you're in the middle of treatment and especially in intensive treatment like I was, it's so nice to have something else to think about. Having a you know, life-threatening disease at the same time that you're kind of locked down and forced to distance yourself from people is, it's a very interesting thing to go through.
1: But Wendy says that even though she was grateful for online mahjong, being with her friends in person was so much better.
3: You can touch people again. We can hug each other. I'm so excited <gasps> to be here! Oh my goodness! We can laugh with each other. We can share food. It's joyous my recovery is going well Val's recovery is going well I just knew I wanted to make a kind of a big deal and I wanted to celebrate hey. to in-person Maj yeah. wow. Yay. To in-person Maj and yeah. to luck and love and laughter and life yes. Lachaim. Lachaim. This story
1: was produced by Jordan Marie Smith We'll put a link in our show notes to the online version where you can see friends and family reuniting, and I dare you to watch it without tearing up. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Renny Svernovsky. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at PostReports.com. And join the conversation online using the hashtag PostReports. I'm Alexis Diao. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.